welcome to Royally Screwed. My name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, it's a look behind the scenes of what people will usually refer to as the fall of the Aztec Empire after the Spanish invasion by Cortes. The ruler of the week is Moltequizoma Xocoyotzin, more commonly known in English and Spanish as Montezuma. If you've learned anything about Moltequizoma, and no, I won't be referring to him as Montezuma again, it was probably that he welcomed the Spanish conquistadors into his kingdom, after which it eventually fell. You might have also heard stories about how he thought Cortes was a god. We'll get into all of that later. There is more to his story than just his meeting with Cortes, though obviously that is a major part of why Moltequizoma is remembered in history. In fact, there's a lot more to the Aztecs than just the fall of their empire, and that one weird time people thought they predicted the end of the world would be in 2012? Remember when they made the 2012 movie and didn't even release it in 2012? Wild. Also, if you haven't picked up on how I run this show by now, there will be a scathing review of Spanish culture in terms of colonialism. I hope you enjoy that. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the 15th century Mexico to learn about the fall of Motequizoma in Pick Your God and Face Destruction. As I said, we've got to learn about the Aztecs before we can learn about Motequizoma himself. First things first, Aztec is actually not the best term to use to describe the people Motequizoma ruled over. Technically, there's nothing wrong with the word. It's not like it's actually a slur, as far as I can tell, or a complete misnomer. It's just that the people we refer to as the Aztecs never actually use that word to describe themselves. It was a term that was later developed deriving from a mythological location called Aztlan, where several groups of people living within central Mexico claim to have come from. So who actually were these people? Well, Aztec refers to three different tribes that operated together in an alliance, called the Triple Alliance, though the group would quickly become an empire ruled by the tribe from which Moltequizoma hails. In a sense, it's kind of like the Sioux, which we talked about way back in episode 3 with Sitting Bull, a name that has been put as a label over fairly distinct individual groups operating together. The three main tribes that formed the Aztec spoke a language called Nahuatl, also referred to as Mexicano. Moltequizoma's tribe was called the Mexica people, which some people believe is where we get the name of modern-day Mexico. That group may seem like the obvious namesake, but it's still heavily disputed over what the actual origin of the name Mexico is. The three main Nahuatl tribes settled in central Mexico sometime in the latter half of the first millennium CE, around 1325, or at least that's the date that's been decided based on Aztec legend, the Mexica people received a divine vision telling them to build a city. They eventually settled on an island in Lake Texcoco, which is now all but gone and is smack dab in the middle of Mexico City. The city would become the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan. The Mexica people were also called the Tenochca. The other main tribes of the alliance that would become the Aztec Empire had their own grand cities at Texcoco and Tlacopan. After successfully fighting off the larger tribes in the area who were seeking to subjugate these people, the three cities formed their alliance. 
the Mexica and Tenochtitlan would quickly become the military powerhouse of the alliance, and eventually the people in Texcoco and Tlacopan would become second fiddles to the main seat of an empire. Though the empire would be founded by warfare, you know, as empires are, and the modern day populace usually think of the Aztecs as a brutal and warfaring civilization, there is much more to the Aztec people than just that. Yes, war was seen as a prestigious duty of the people, but let's step away from that for a moment. There were two main social classes in Aztec society, the Pipiltine, aka the nobles, and the Makewaltine, aka everyone else. While the Makewaltine were originally a peasant-like class as farmers working under lords, it eventually evolved to take in the other non-noble people. By the end of the empire, only around 20% of the Makewaltine were farmers. Also, through skill in war, a Makewaltine citizen could ascend to the Pipiltine. Also, the Aztec were far more advanced in terms of gender equality than most nations of the time, and many nations after that time. The Aztecs operated under a spectrum of gender identities besides just the binary male-female society, which as a non-binary person myself is always nice to see. But being slightly reductive and talking about gender in terms of binary, female members of Aztec society were on a more or less equal footing with their male counterparts. There were very clearly defined separate gender roles for men and women, but they were viewed as equally important work by the gods. And speaking of gods, let's get into the Aztec religion. The Aztecs were polytheistic. The chief deity among the Mexica people was Huitzilopochtli, god of war and the sun. He was also the patron god of Tenochtitlan. Other major deities included Tlaloc, a god of storms, Tezcatlipoca, god of the night, magic, and prophecy, and Quetzalcoatl, god of the wind and sky, and also the namesake for my pet snake. Yeah, I named my snake after an Aztec god. Another major part of the Aztec religion was their calendar system. The Aztecs actually had two calendars. One was 260 days long, where each day corresponded with a ritual holiday. The other calendar was 365 days long and corresponded with the sun, much like the modern calendar. The calendars would match beginnings every 52 years, but during those 52 years, every individual day had a unique name. That's almost 19,000 names. The beginning of the new 52-year calendar was celebrated with a festival referred to as the New Fire Ceremony. During the ceremony, every fire in the Aztec realm of power was extinguished. A new fire was lit over a sacrificial victim, and that fire was then distributed to each Aztec household. And speaking of sacrifice, let's very briefly touch on human sacrifice within Aztec society. The Aztecs are often thought of as bloodthirsty people who sacrificed humans left and right to appease angry gods and the sun. While human sacrifice was indeed an important aspect in some Aztec rituals, the numbers thrown around are thought to be heavily exaggerated. However, that sacrificing for the sun thing is kind of correct. 
there's an Aztec story of creation that involves a god sacrificing his own body in order to turn into the sun. The sun would continue moving across the sky as long as the gods offered their own blood to it. There's also another creation story that involves Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca killing a giant crocodile that would become the earth. The crocodile's corpse would remain fertile for plants as long as blood was offered in sacrifice. So yes, blood sacrifice was a major aspect of Aztec religion, but it had its place and purpose. Also, it's not like other civilizations all over the world throughout history abstained from human sacrifices. I'm looking at you, ancient Greece. So now we've learned the basics of Aztec culture. It was a massive empire consisting of people from many different walks of life with a rich cultural and religious background. There were mighty warriors who conquered much of central Mexico, and it would reach its greatest heights and, in turn, greatest fall under one man. <laughs> Due to the fact that the Spanish burned almost every scrap of information the Aztec people had during the conquest of Mexico, there's a lot of blank spaces and dates in the story of Moltequizoma. Some things are fairly educated guesses, and others are what was written down by Spanish friars who worked with the Aztec people, though let's be honest, those sources were almost definitely biased. So let's try starting at the beginning with what's available. Most sources tend to agree that Motequizomo was born in 1466 in Tenochtitlan. He was the son of Ashiyactl, a Tlatuani, a Nahuatl word translated as king, of the Mexica in Tenochtitlan, though his father would become a ruler a few years after Motequizomo was born. Depending on which sources you follow, the Tlatuani of Tenochtitlan at the time of Motequizomo's birth was either Ashiyactl's grandfather, Motequizomo I, Oh yeah, our Motequizoma is also known as Motequizoma II, but the Aztec didn't use the number system for rulers, so our guy would have been referred to in his own time as Motequizoma the Younger. Or, the ruler was Ashiyaktal's mother, Atotzli, though these sources for the most part are usually not considered trustworthy, so who can say? Ashiyaktal and both of his brothers, Tizoc and Hawitztl, would all be Tlatuani in succession after each man passed away. Being the Tlatuani of Tenochtitlan also made you the Wei Tlatuani of the Triple Alliance, aka the Emperor of the Aztec Empire. Ashiyaktal ascended to the throne as Wei Tlatuani in 1469 after the death of his grandfather, or in 1472 after the death of his mother, depending on who you're gonna believe. Motequizoma's father continued the Aztec tradition of conquering the surrounding tribes until he contracted a serious illness and died in 1481 at either age 31 or 32. Motequizoma's uncles continued this work, with Ahuitzl finally gaining land for the empire along the Pacific coast in southern Mexico and in the west of modern-day Guatemala. And, when Ahuitzl died in either 1502 or 1503, as I said, dates are hard in Motequizoma's story, it was finally time for a ruler from the next generation to step up. 
I feel like I've said this a lot about rulers I've covered on this show, but we don't know a whole lot about Motokuzoma's childhood. Funny how that happens a lot with famous rulers, right? I mean, at least in this case, we know that it's due to, you know, the Spanish destroying anything that could have told us in concrete detail. However, as great-grandson, possibly grandson, son and nephew of several previous Talatuani, it would be almost impossible to say that Motekwazoma did not grow up with a high-ranking education. Most Aztec sources note that, as a young boy, Motekwazoma was extremely religious and very keen on respecting omens and other elements of the supernatural. At some point before being crowned Tlatuani, he was a priest in the temple of the war god Huitzilopochtli. Also, as a man of the Mexica people, he would have been trained as a soldier and fought in the military campaigns launched by the previous Tlatoque, which is the plural form of Tlatuani. His accomplishments clearly set him up for the role of Hue Tlatuani. It was only natural that he would be chosen after the death of Awitzitl. And as for when he became Tlatuani, as I said earlier, Hawitzel died in either 1502 or 1503. Most people go for 1502 because that's when historical documents say, but there's an Aztec relic that's currently at the Art Institute of Chicago that gives a date on the Aztec calendar that corresponds to July 15, 1503. Whatever year Motokwazoma took the throne doesn't really matter because he quickly set to work reorganizing his empire. Previously, as the Aztec Triple Alliance slash Empire conquered other tribes, they would allow the local leaders to still have control over their people as long as they kicked up some tax money back to the boys in charge. Awitztl had almost doubled the size of the empire during his rule, meaning that there were many more conquered tribes now living under the rule of the Mexica and Tenochtitlan. In order to consolidate his power, Motokwazoma began dethroning the local leaders of the conquered lands and instated his own provincial magistrates to take the lead. And of course, these magistrates were accompanied by a military force to ensure things went exactly as Motokwazoma planned. He also made it harder, actually nearly impossible, for a citizen to gain upwards social mobility. Members of the Makawaltin, the commoners, were no longer allowed to serve in his royal court. Add to all of that some seriously higher taxes levied out to the people of his empire, and you end up with some pretty angry citizens. Several wars broke out between the Mexica and other tribes throughout Motequazoma's lands. He had made plenty of enemies. But of course, Motequazoma's greatest enemy was still yet to come from beyond the horizon. What to say about Hernán Cortés de Manroy y Pizarro Altamirano? Well, he sucked. This is a very fun episode to research and write because both major players in it are both pretty bad people. Yes, I am considering Motequizoma a bad person. He changed a meritocracy into an empire where only the rich and powerful can advance. That's not good. I know in more modern times we generally look at the past and say, hey, those white people are really bad, 
which is true in the sense of colonization, but that doesn't change the fact that Motequizoma made a lot of enemies from people of similar cultures to his, and they kinda had the right to be mad at him. Anyway, back to Cortez. Hernán Cortez was born into a lesser nobility family in Medellín, Spain. He left for the New World in 1504 at the age of 18 and arrived in Hispaniola, the island containing the countries Haiti and the Dominican Republic. He helped in the conquest efforts of the island and Cuba, to which he was given plenty of land and native slaves as a reward. About a decade later, he was a high-ranking magistrate to the governor of Cuba. In 1518, Cortes received his big break when he was given permission to lead an expedition to the mainland, Mexico. Of course, we know how this story will eventually play out. But here's the thing. Right before Cortes was set to leave, the governor of Cuba decided to pull him off the expedition. Over the past few years, the pair's relationship had deteriorated, and an argument between the two led to the governor deciding he no longer wanted Cortez as the man for the job. And yet, Cortez just said, screw you, and left with the expedition anyways. Yeah, even though the colonization of Mexico probably would have happened anyway at some point, technically everything Cortez did after leaving port in Cuba was unsanctioned. What? A massive prick. Cortez landed on the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico in February of 1519. There, he found a Spanish priest who had been shipwrecked and held captive by the Mayan people. The priest had picked up the Mayan language and acted as Cortez's translator for the journey. He then led several small military campaigns in the region before, one month later in March, officially declaring that land for Spain. If you remember from the episode over Pope Alexander VI, Spain had asked the Pope for, essentially, God's blessing to claim the new world as theirs. The Pope said yes, so that meant it was God's will. So of course, Cortes also converted the natives to Christianity. One of these people converted was a woman known as La Malinche, a Mayan woman who knew Nahuatl who would become Cortes's mistress. Now, via two translators, Cortes had the means of communicating with the natives of the Aztec Empire. And, on Easter in 1519, Cortes finally took the initiative and met with two local governors under the control of Motequizoma. Cortes and his crew weren't the first Spaniards to arrive in Motequizoma's empire. Two years before, in 1517, a Spanish crew arrived in the lands of the Totonac, a tribe under the control of the Aztecs. Ever since then, Motequizoma had made sure that his people kept an eye out for these new strangers. It was said to be Motequizoma himself that sent the two emissaries to meet with the Spaniards on Easter in 1519. Allegedly, Cortes asked many times over to meet with the Tlatuani of Tenochtitlan, but Motequizoma kept refusing his requests. In July, Cortes had conquered areas in modern-day Veracruz, along the Gulf Coast of Mexico. A month later, he led an army of over 600 soldiers towards the Aztec capital. He fought several tribes along the way, but when both parties found out they were enemies of the Aztecs, Cortes and the local tribes created an alliance to capture Tenochtitlan. In October of 1519, 
Cortes captured the city of Cholula, which was then the second largest city in Mexico behind Tenochtitlan, and yes, is the namesake of the hot sauce. In an effort to instill fear in the Aztecs, he had thousands of unarmed nobles in the city slaughtered and then burned down parts of the city. From there, with his massive army at hand, Cortes led the final march on the city of Motecuazoma. Let's get right out with a couple of myths surrounding Cortes' arrival in Tenochtitlan. The most famous myth, which even I believed until somewhat recently, was that the Spaniards were allowed into the city of the Mexica because they believed him to either be an emissary from Quetzalcoatl or the actual god himself. According to this story, it's said that the Mexica depictions of Quetzalcoatl were as a white-bearded god, and who did Hernán Cortés happen to be? A white-bearded man. And as I said earlier, Motecuzoma was a very, very religious and superstitious man. If a god shows up in your city and you are that type of person, surely you would go to said god on hands and knees, welcoming them into your home. But here's the thing. That's not true. The part about Quetzalcoatl being a white god, I mean. That depiction of him is completely fabricated. I'll put up some actual Aztec artwork of Quetzalcoatl on social media. So where does this story come from? Not the Mexica, that's for sure. Apparently, this narrative wasn't circulating until the 1550s, three decades after the conquest of the Aztecs. It's now very much believed that this story was created to further perpetuate the stereotypes of the ignorant native people and the glorious technologically advanced white men. While the Spaniards definitely had different technology, such as metal armor and guns, that didn't mean that the locals saw them as gods. There's plenty of historians that suggest the Aztecs would be more impressed by the Spanish horses rather than the actual conquering soldiers themselves. So no, Motecuazoma did not believe Cortes was his god. The next myth, though this one is a bit disputed, is that Motecuazoma graciously welcomed Cortes into his city and home. He apparently said, You have graciously come on earth. You have graciously approached your water, your high place of Mexico. You have come down to your mat, your throne, which I have briefly kept for you. I who used to keep it for you. Obviously said in Nahuatl, not English. Sounds really nice, right? In fact, it sounds like something you might even say to a god entering your city. Some historians still use this to perpetuate the Cortez Quetzalcoatl myth. Well, here's a fun fact about Aztec culture. Apparently, being polite was actually a show of dominance and superiority. So in this context, Motecuazoma saying, thanks for stopping by on your long journey, come into my house and sit on my throne, actually meant the exact opposite. I mean, you should know by this point that Motecuazoma is kind of self-important and all about holding the nobility above everyone else. Being sarcastic and petty towards a stranger from a distant land who says he wants to claim your city as his own fits the bill for our Aztec emperor. 
It is generally believed, though, that Moctezuma allowed the Spanish army to enter Tenochtitlan on November 8, 1519, without any great deal of hassle. And that's when things got worse. For several months, Moctezuma let Cortez and his army live in Tenochtitlan. And life kinda just continued on for the Mexica. Moctezuma continued expanding the Aztec domain to reach its farthest boundaries. Eventually, the people team, the Aztec nobility, became increasingly upset with the foreign army living in their city, and it's said that Moctezuma asked Cortez and his army to leave. Cortez did not leave. Cortez then learned that a group of Spaniards further out by the coast had been killed by Aztec warriors while the Spanish were protecting their native allies. In response to the news, Cortez finally took control and forced Moctezuma into being a prisoner within his own palace. In May of 1520, yet yeah, the Spanish had been in Tenochtitlan for half a year at this point, a man named Panfilo de Narvaez landed in Mexico with the orders to arrest Cortez because, you know, Cortez was leading an illegal military campaign. Leaving around 200 Spanish soldiers behind in Tenochtitlan, Cortez left the city in order to take care of the threat to his existence. On May 22nd, Moctezuma, still under house arrest, asked the leader of the remaining Spanish army if his people could celebrate their festival of Toscatl, a celebration of the god Tezcatlipoca. The Spanish agreed to his request, so the Mexica began the festivities. And here where things begin to differ depending on who you choose to believe, the Aztec sources or the Spanish. Part of Tezcatl involves sacrificing a person whose role is to impersonate the god Tezcatlipoca. This person is chosen at the end of the previous year's celebration and spends the whole year living as an incarnation of Tezcatlipoca. If you believe the Spanish accounts, they were horrified at this ritual and attempted to put a stop to the sacrifice. The Spanish then surrounded the temple where the sacrifice was to occur and killed those inside. According to the Aztec sources, the Spanish led the assault because of the gold and other jewels the Mexica wore as part of the festival. The Spanish laughed as they brutally murdered the celebrants and stole their belongings. Those that managed to escape the killing fled into the streets of Tenochtitlan and warned the others of what had happened. It should also be noted that in both sources of what is called the Massacre of the Great Temple, the Spanish attack was unprovoked. In response to the Mexica now turning outwardly hostile towards them, the Spanish took Moctezuma as a hostage in order to ensure their safety. Cortez returned to Tenochtitlan to find his men boarded up in the Emperor's palace while an enraged army of Mexica soldiers waited for them to either fight or starve to death. Cortez ordered Moctezuma to put an end to the violence, but the Tlatuani refused to comply. Cortez then ordered one of Moctezuma's advisors to go out into the markets and return with food for his soldiers. The advisors seemingly agreed to the command, only to then become the leader of the Aztec revolt against the Spanish. With no other options, sometime around the end of June, Cortez forced Moctezuma to speak in front of his people. 
the Tlatoani met with several leaders of the Mexica people who told him that one of his relatives was now the Tlatoani and was leading the revolt. But they would gladly accept him back if he found a way to escape the Spanish. This conversation did not sit well with the rest of the Mexica. They formally denounced Motecuazoma as leader and made his brother, Cuitlahuac, the new Tlatoani. After this, despite allegedly being guarded by Spanish soldiers, Motecuazoma was struck by stones that his people pelted his way. He refused the medical assistance offered by the Spanish and, several days later, passed away. Within a year, Tenochtitlan had fallen to the Spanish army. Yeah, there's no happy ending to this story, sorry. The conquest of Mexico would continue until it was completely owned by the Spanish crown. Cortes would go on to become the first governor of New Spain. Most of Motecuazoma's family was killed during the revolt against the Spanish. However, some of his family survived and, oddly enough, became Spanish nobility. In 1627, Motecuazoma's great-grandson was given the title Count of Motecuazoma. In 1865, the title was elevated to Duke of Motecuazoma, and Motecuazoma's bloodline still exists today. The current Duke of Motecuazoma de Toltengo is Juan José Marcia de Teruel Motecuazoma y Valcarcel. Motecuazoma's image would continue to be used throughout history as a symbol of native resistance to the Spanish, despite other forces desperately trying to paint him as an overtly superstitious leader who cowered in the face of a mighty white god. And while he definitely was a conqueror who made many enemies that would eventually help those who destroyed his people, Motecuazoma is much more than just a god-fearing coward. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. We're staying in North America next time, but instead of a conquering emperor, we're going to cover those who resisted against the grip of European monarchies. It's a trip to the Bahamas as we dive into the stories of several famous privateers who had formed the Republic of Pirates. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.